I have a question for you, sir. Shoot. Is time travel possible? That is a question. Come back to me. Hello again, everybody, and welcome back for another episode of the IWMP podcast. My name is Matthew Porter. And I'm Ian Porter. I'm his dad. He's my son. And we've watched a lot of adventure kind of stories lately. We have. Lots of... A lot of superhero uh, stuff. Yeah. You know, flying in capes and swashbuckling and buckling of swashes. So we're trying a different kind of, uh, of genre this time. We're going to talk about a very famous romance movie. I, I was excited when I heard about that. <laughs> Weirdly enough... Uh, like rom-com stories somehow are the counterpart to my uh, sitcom kryptonite. Like for some reason, I love these sort of things. I, I have watched shows. I have my anime list is just full of those shows. I don't know why that's a thing I can deal with. So I was really excited when you described that, like that we were going to do that. Cause I'm like, Ooh, it's, it's something I can maybe get into weirdly. Yay. Well, I must have really thrown you a curveball because this may be a romance. It is not a comedy. It is not. This it is, is pure. Very much not a comedy. It's it's very much not a comedy. We watched Somewhere in Time. Starring Christopher Reeve. Starring Christopher Reeve and Jane Seymour. Directed by I'm I'm checking my notes that this is not going to help my pronunciation. Jeno Swartz. I think that, yeah. S-Z-W-A-R-C. My apologies to anyone uh, of that name. And this movie is also based on the novel by Richard Matheson. I looked up this novel afterwards, and I'm going to have to look at it later because it might fix the things I found annoying about this movie. Well, did you look up Richard Matheson while you were at it? Not, not too much. Richard Matheson is a heavy hitter. He is very prolific, and he's one of these people, this is the far guy who, fewer people know his name than know his work. That he wrote I Am Legend? Yeah, he wrote I Am Legend, which has had not one but two movie adaptations. Multiple I episodes of The Twilight Zone. Including which, some of the most famous. I'm not surprised, having seen this movie now. Uh, a bunch of Roger Corman, Edgar Allan Poe adaptations. Oh, my word. Like the Pit and the Pendulum and that whole sequence. This the, is a wild list on his his track record. The novel What Dreams May Come, which also got a movie adaptation some uh, a decade or, or two later. Some TV episode called The Enemy Within. I don't know what that one's from. I don't know. He worked on Kolchak the Night Stalker. That's right. He did. Yes. Yeah. I'm sure we- So this is a tieback. Yeah. Absolutely. Like, that is- he, that guy, he has a track record that is amazing, and that's kind of why there's a lot of interesting stuff in this film. I'll give it that much to begin with. So he is best known for that working in that sci-fi, fantasy, fantastic horror sort of of uh, milieu, and here he's writing a romance story. But it's a very Richard Matheson kind of romance. It's a very Richard Matheson kind of romance story. Because as, uh, as the title might suggest, it is a romance story with time travel. This is a romance story with time travel. You have my attention. And then this, this took me in places I was not prepared because I... I eh. Now, it seems to me that time travel romance has become more of a thing in the in even I wouldn't even say after this it took quite some time I would say but now you've got things like what was that was it the lake house I think had Sandra Bullock yeah, and that had a I think so. time travel element and that kind of fantastical time travel related romance more of a thing it was quite gr groundbreaking I think in 1980 when this was made <laughs> I could I, <laughs> I can give this credit for being groundbreaking then <laughs> Um, why do I get the feeling that you are struggling for reasons to give it any kind of credit? I absolutely am, because oh, I'm no. sorry. Christopher Reeve somehow achieves the most horrifyingly, like, 
this is re- he gets really creepy. This is a really weird character and really weird interpretation. And looking up more about the story, I feel like they scrubbed things that would have fixed it from the novel to make this movie. And all that's left is me going, ah, no, slop, why? Oh, no, yeah. please, no. There, there are definitely aspects of our, our hero's behavior that do not age well. I'm not saying that they were good in 1980. But we are quicker to recognize that, you know, maybe you shouldn't pave that way. Christopher Reeve, time stalker. (laughs) Oh, goodness. Throughout my notes, I've got various times where I just write creep, creep, creep. creep. Yes, I've got that too. (laughs) But it's also, to some extent, that's also a trope of that kind of behavior. Sometimes a trope of romance just because things have to happen quickly in most romance stories, more quickly and more dramatically than they do in real life. Yeah. And there are certain behaviors that story-wise lend themselves to that, even though in the real world it would be, you know, maybe let's not, or maybe (laughs) should we call somebody? Oh, yeah. There's a lot of this movie that could have been fixed at various points if someone else called someone. But it starts, I gotta say, that opening scene... That opening, like, initial first moment setup is really, really compelling. I'll yeah. give... I'll and before we that. get too far into that, I just want to say, you know, we're, so we're taking as read the fact that some of this doesn't age well. Also, uh, spoilers, we're going to talk about the plot of the movie. If you haven't seen it, you're interested in seeing it, you know, go do that and come back. There are twists. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, you're saying about the opening scene. We start with him as a playwright at, like, the big final production from his college days i take it right he's a was a student playwright i gather he's still a student at that point and he's having a play produced there at the college it's his big triumph and the beginnings of a great career as far as most most people are thinking and i've got to say the fact that the hero of this story is a writer for overly sentimental 15 year old me i'm all in absolutely (laughs) sign me up Oh, this is what life's going to be like, right? Oh, yeah. He's getting swarmed by people wanting to ask him about his next project. That looks pretty impressive. Although one of the people that comes up from the back of this of the theater is an old lady who hands him a pocket watch and says, come back to me and then leaves a very striking, elegant and slightly. I don't want to say ethereal because that suggests an unreality. There's something something about her presence. There's something immediately that they're setting up that kind of slightly mystical witchy. Yeah, there's something going on. Something odd. The entire tone of the room changes when she interacts and such to add the dramatic effect. And that's a remarkable uh, uh, thing for her to say when she gives him this pocket watch. And then immediately they end that scene with uh, him driving off and a and a, a cutaway saying eight years later, <laughs> and he's and they're showing like the multiple plays he's written and he's got been successful. And I've literally got in my notes. Uh, turns out this is just a dramatic biopic. They never explained that opening. This is going to be a very different <laughs> film. <laughs> no, no, they go back to that and kind of wish they didn't at times. You just kind of wish it was, well, something weird happened at the beginning of his career. Oh, yeah. Anyway, here's the career of uh, famous playwright Richard Collier. Just give me a biopic movie instead. (laughs) I'm okay with that. But no, uh, he has a break. His life looks all nice and great, but he's had a breakup and is having kind of a breakdown. Yeah, he's struggling with the play that uh, that he's supposed to be writing. So he needs to take a break. And so he goes to drive off for a vacation and instead on his way like sees and decides to spend his time at this hotel yeah he's on his way back to his college it seems yeah but then the he passes the grand hotel the grand hotel that is uh, uh that is near the college and he sort of remembers from his college days so he decides to you know stop and stay there for the night at least and that's where the entire movie will be set from here out the grand hotel which yeah. i gotta say is a very interesting thematic location it's got a, they, they play with the style of it, they play with the space, but it's also an actual building, and some of their cinematography is cramped at times, moving around it. It was shot at the Grand Hotel 
on Mackinac Island, which was founded in the 1880s or around 1890. So it's been around for a while. And I, I believe it's a place that they don't have cars there. So they yeah, like, the island, they don't have cars except for some emergency vehicles. So they imported a bunch of cars to make it look like you could drive up to this place <laughs> right. for the sake of the film. I don't think it was set on Mackinac Island, so they were able to bring in some cars for the sake of the shooting. But it, you're right, it is a great setting, even though uh, apparently it might have been inconvenient to film in sometimes. And it's there that he... There's a long sequence of him like checking in and getting used to it and just setting up this hotel as an environment. Yeah, in retrospect, when I think about all the things they accomplish in those scenes, I would have expected it to be slower. Yeah. It actually wasn't because there's all every shot is has a purpose and is doing something either now or something that's going to be paid off later. I would have expected a lot of films to have tried to put in some sort of save the hotel plot, but they never do. No. The hotel is just there and will be there. And that's kind of the trusted constant of its environment, which works for the story. Mm-hmm. But it's got a, a little history room, which he winds up wandering into. The and Hall this, of History. The Hall of History. And this is where things start to decline i think but also <laughs> the romance story actually shows up so oh it's okay so what happens with this um with this playwright who's recently had a breakup and is struggling with his his current work in the hall of history he falls head over heels for a picture of a girl <laughs> like f- Vaseline on the lens, fuzzy lighting coming in through a skylight, just <laughs> framing the photo, just doing the whole nine yards effect. They just pull out all the stops. There's nothing subtle about there's nothing subtle about much of this movie, but when they really need to give you a romantic emotional punch, they pull out every stop. Yeah, they take all their stuff very very seriously with their they're they're like they're pulling out all the stops. They're they're grand with their presentation. If this was a comedy, it goes so far, it's cheesy. I would have expected, like, the cutaway to the little sandwich board saying, like, violin concerto convention meeting in this room. Because they'll go to the absolute, like, what you expect on the soundtrack at points. So it's just up to the edge of being an airplane-style movie? Yes. That's, that's like, if, if you, you could comedy this with so few cutaway moments in that sense... Because it takes itself so seriously, you can knock it down that peg. But uh, the first kind of, I, I don't think it's a twist, but it's kind of the first reveal, is as he f- sees this photo and falls immediately and irrevocably in love with this lady, he starts asking about who this person is. She's a actress who used to perform at the little attached theater. Right. And he looks back and all of this results in, it turns out, old lady pocket watch used to be hot girl in photo. Oh my goodness. (laughs) You're absolutely right. That summarizes a lot of cool stuff in the movie, if you ask me, because it really is an investigative story in during that whole act. Oh, he is looking stuff up and he is um, finding out first who she is. What she did, when was she here? Oh, early in her career, 1912, she was in this play. And he's going to the local library and digging into all these remote things, eventually finds like the person who was her assistant or caretaker at the end of her life, which turned out to be around when she gave him the pocket watch. The day. That day, that's right. So I kind of like just the investigative part of that. That really reeled me in. I did reduce that a lot. This is a really great search montage it gives its time (laughs) it's investigative he goes through multiple things and he finds all these little clues like the performance she last did at the place uh the like finding out like who her manager was and how famous she was back in the day and and old photos of her and including the the last photo taken of her which is how we get the reveal of who she was and it's actually really well done scene this is a movie comprised of excellently done scenes in that sense it is it's well produced in that 
in all of its segments, and each of those has a consistency to it. Yeah, e- each of its components, each of its parts. So yeah. I guess it depends on do you like what these parts were assembled into or not? A fine set of bricks. What have you built? <laughs> and I mean, the cast, you have Christopher Reeve, uh, Jane Seymour, who's wonderful. Christopher Plummer as her manager, who is a slightly sinister character we get to know more about as the movie goes on. There, it's interesting to get to see Reeve, having watched him now in the, in the Superman film we watched, seeing him in a different type of role, because he can definitely have this... He's got a, a room presence as an actor, which is so important. And when he was playing Superman Clark Kent, he had to balance this center of the room and this, I'm trying to fade into the background, but you can still see me because I'm a main character constantly. And that same skill is on display here because he's able to say everything with this conviction. And that is excellent. Because it means that when he is researching something, you get invested with him. He's like, I need to find this info. And you're with him. You need to find this info. I get it. And it also means that some of his lines where it's like, I'm going to convince the librarian to do this for me. By like, oh, come on. Come help me. It gets awkward because he can say it with so much conviction. It seems it 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 it, cr- it crawled up my spine a little cuz i'm like <laughs> you should not be able to put this much natural charisma into trying to convince someone to not go home after a long day of work just to make sure that you can get some card catalogs like dude yeah it's this combination of presence and assertiveness and aw shucks self-effacing charm yeah. like how how are these mixing? How are these not oil and water? And yet they work together somehow. How, how do you how do you always roll twenty when you're trying to convince somebody? <laughs> and why is that not helping? Yep. So yeah, he eventually he finds out he finds out that this pocket watch was incredibly important uh, to her before she gave it to him. Like she was never without this pocket watch, and then she, she comes back having like. Suddenly not having the pocket watch puts on her favorite song and just like passes away that night. And, and yet, it it's like, what? and I don't even think we've mentioned her name yet. Elise McKenna, who went on to become a famous actress, apparently. Oh, yeah. She, well, she not famous enough that this playwriting student knew the name offhand, but had still had a, a quite a career beginning around 1912. And then there's this leap that I had trouble following. Yeah. Because he's learned all about her. He's gotten this info. And then he, like, takes a turn where he's going to the college and asking a professor. Oh, at least they give us a very good reason for that. When he visits what was uh, at least McKenna's last home, there's a copy of the book, Travels Through Time which this woman who knew her at the end of her life said she was obsessed with that book. She read it over and over, and it was actually written by a professor at the nearby college where Collier had uh, had uh, gone to school. But at least he knew, or, or, or was curious enough, why was she this person who I have this, I feel like I've got this connection to, but who is so much older, interested in time travel? Uh, good point. And Th- that, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but I wonder why she was interested in time travel also, because that's never explained. Yeah. But the fact that she was is what leads him to seek out this professor, a philosophy professor, by the way, not a physics professor. Which results in the explanation for, because the philosophy professor explains his theory of time travel to him. And it is the most unique version of time travel. I think I've seen in a movie. I'm used to things like massive amounts of electricity piped through a car or alien telecommunications boxes and things like that. But I've never seen time travel through repeated mantra before. (laughs) And that's a, that's a unique way to do it. Time travel because you really, 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 really want to. Yeah. Or, in this case, self-hypnosis. Yeah. The mind affects 
space and time. So if you convince the mind of something sufficiently thoroughly, then for whatever is controlled by that mind, it becomes reality. And yeah, you're back in time. I'm I, I'm sorry. I'm just realizing that you can actually summarize this movie as Christopher Reeve altered states himself to hook up with a girl. <laughs> yeah, there definitely are some scenes that reminded me of bits of altered states and had me wondering, did, did I, did, were, are there mushrooms involved? And did I miss that part where the professor uh, mentioned those? Yeah. But he's, he immediately becomes dead set on time travel because of this book. And he... You know, and, and this really cool conversation with the professor. And this really cool conversation with the professor where he is already starting to just like ramp up to 11 with the professor and scare the professor a little. <laughs> it's like, have you done time travel? It's like, I kind of theorized it and maybe I got a little yeah. bit of somewhere once. Thinks it I might have happened for an instant. It might have happened for an instant, but I never tried it again. But it's possible. It's like... Maybe calm down, dude. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like, do you need to sit down? Do you need some water? You need to chill. It's whatever this is wearing off because you're getting scary. But he he immediately sets up an entire thing. He's recording uh, a he hypnosis tape for himself about it. He's buying a vintage suit. He's buying vintage coins. Mm. And I think the cool, one of the coolest moments is him getting access to the, uh, the extra history, the mo- more stuff that's not in the, uh, the history museum in the hotel and finding the old check-in book mm-hmm. and finding his own signature on it. In 1912. In 1912. So he knows the date and time when he checked into this hotel in 1912. So that re-energizes him because now he knows it happened therefore it has to happen because he's been trying this method of of time travel for a day or more now and it hasn't worked and the professor made up the point that it's not just the hypnosis it has to be reinforced by the environment you're in so he's ahead of the game in that he's in the hotel that was here in 1912 same hotel she was at so he empties the room of everything modern, moves the TV and the telephone, and uh, essentially ev- does everything except tear the electric lights off the wall. Yeah. And stuffs all of that stuff in the, uh, in the closet and just lays there with his tape recorder playing the hypnosis tape that he made for himself. We see him empty his pockets and put stuff away and just like get himself all set up in this. He, we see him realize the fact that A... A visible tape recorder with his hypnosis thing on it itself is a problem. He has to hide the tape recorder under the bed so he hears the sound without seeing where it's coming from. Well, I think he stopped playing it and just started repeating it to himself at that point. Oh, yeah. He tries that and it still fails. Yeah. Yeah. So he he turns off the tape. And by this time, he's heard it thousands of times, probably. So he just repeats to himself this earnest, though not terribly organized, set of suggestions about the fact that you are in this hotel in 1912 on this date. And he makes it. He successfully time travels himself. Although part of me was wondering, like, has he actually time traveled or is he just hypnotized himself to think he has? And you get a guy wandering around moder- at the time, modern day, absolutely visibly certain that he's in the past because he can't <laughs> see what's going on. <sighs> That would have been a whole other thing. I'm like, are we sure this isn't all in his head? But according to the movie, he has time travel. He f- he succeeded. And then it's then it's actually a little bit more straightforward in some ways now that he's in the past, just trying to get to her. He knows she's he- she's here at the hotel. He has to go find her, has to go meet her, introduce himself to uh, to her. And I'm not sure he has much of a plan beyond that. I guess he just figures, well, if I haven't even met you and I'm this in love with you, we're meant to be, so all I have to do is meet you. That seems to be his theory. Yeah, there's, I know, it's the, hi, I know everything about you. I love you. Nothing like, creepy about nothing that. Nothing creepy about that. Like, I, I traveled time for you. Uh... So essentially, he starts wandering around to this resort asking people, I'm looking for Miss McKenna. Where is she? 
and somehow does not get thrown out as soon as like i expected him to get thrown out way faster than it takes for that to happen narratively and most of the people who seem to know where she should be tell him yeah that's also disconcerting but yeah she's supposed to be preparing for the uh, the play that they're setting up uh and rehearsing in the uh the theater by the lake this is also one thing that i'm going to immediately point out that bugs me they clearly set up a playwright and an actress and then nowhere in this film does she perform anything he writes true they didn't really have much time for that i mean they did talk about the fact that they would i know but you know they would they had a day and a half or whatever it was yeah that's the thing they had a day and a half but it's still it's like I felt like they leaned so hard on those things in the beginning. <laughs> they did. And it just yeah. falls away after he gets back in time. It becomes like a reason for him not to be out of his depth when he's in her social environment. Yeah, kind he of. kind of knows his way around a theater and, and that kind of thing. But it never comes up then again. <laughs> and that actually bugged me. But... He he makes his way to the theater. He like hunts down like where she is, and she's wandering on the beach, getting herself mentally prepared for her, her performance. So she's a little bit of a a dreamy sort of person, it seems to me, and that she'll just kind of walk walk around by the lake, stare into space to to calm herself. In some ways, she's not given a lot of chance to have personality in many of the scenes. She gets some later, but there were times when. I couldn't tell what they were trying to get yeah. do with her. I, I do think that Jane Seymour brings out of this part more than it necessarily has. Yeah. I think without her, it would seem like a very weak character, but she does a great deal with it. it, it she, she, is, she is making a lot with having been given not much in that sense, and that is impressive performance work. Although sometimes I think, well, that's where they started because she becomes more of a rounded person and more of an assertive person later on. She does. So it does give give you a chance to see how she grew into the person we know that she later became. Yeah. But it's still, it's a little odd to watch sometimes in the early scenes. But what's the first thing that she says to him when, when he uh, approaches her? Is it you? Right. Which is another like, is hi, like apparently cryptic single sentences have been a thing for her entire life. And this is, yes, that's her thing. That's her thing. Cryptic, cryptic single sentence statements. It's just like her brand. So it's like she's been waiting for someone. Like, are you the one? Is it you? For a moment. And of course, he's smart enough to say, yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I hope that's good. Like, part of me, like, part of me started wondering if they were going to pull a double time traveler thing for a moment there, because I didn't know the narrative. If she's like got all these like come back to me and is it you and such, it's like, is she from now? Are they gonna pull this twist? They don't pull that <laughs> twist, but I started wondering off of that line. Oh now you're talking about double time travelers, I'm starting to think now. Have you seen Midnight in Paris? Oh. From sometime within the last ten years. We should watch that sometime. Okay. It's, it's too, too recent, it's out of bounds for the, the podcast, but it's an interesting movie to watch in the context of this one. But anyway, I don't want to go too far afield, but, um, but that's a, a fun movie to, to line up next to this. But immediately her manager swoops in and, like, don't, like who is this? Don't talk with him. If, you, if I see you talking with her again, I'll have you kicked out of the place. He's immediately gruff and authoritative and just excellent, excellent work, Mr. Plummer. So yeah, he is her manager and is you know, running her career with an iron fist. Seems to genuinely care about her and her career, but is going to let absolutely nothing get in the way of that. Mm-hmm. He, he has her on a very tight leash in that sense. What was the phrase that they would use? And apparently the way she echoed it back to him, it's his... His guiding principles, like excess within control or something like that. Yeah. That sounds like the kind of thing that you'd have on a, the sticker on the back of a pickup truck. I'm not quite sure what, how, how, how it factors in, but 
<laughs> I think it, it's like the, you need this exuberance to be an actor, but it all has to be in control. It, 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 it sounds like it is somehow written in a cursive font followed by a heavy, bold font for the second word. <laughs> like, I can picture this graphical like layout on a sticker just so perfectly. So then the middle part of the movie is mostly him pursuing her and arranging to spend time with her. And closing time paradoxes. Yeah. Like, actually finally checking into the hotel and making sure <laughs> the time is right. Yes, he knows exactly what minute it's going to be, and it has to be right. I really like, when he finally gets that signed, I, in my mind, I had a Metal Gear Solid style, like, Good job, Richard. You closed the paradox. <laughs> the project can move forward now. Like, it's like, there's this whole time heist moment in there for some reason. And, uh, and he meets Arthur. Oh, we never even talked about Arthur before. Arthur the... Yeah. In 1980, where he, where he was before, he meets this kind old man who works at the hotel. And is saying, like, he's always been here. His dad worked at the front desk, and he played in the, the lobby as a little kid. And then he grew up and took the job, and this has been his life. And then, of course, time travel happens, and we get to meet little Arthur playing the ball <laughs> in the lobby. It's like, oh, this is why Arthur immediately, like, took a liking to this guy and wondered if he'd ever met him before. Yeah, it's they did have that. Nice. You did. Way back in the past. <laughs> he's the guy who gave you back your ball. So I kind of like that. I did like that. That's the thing. Another instance of excellent set bit. Like this scene is an excellent bit of time travel scene. It's just all the connective threads of how they stitch together this rather hasty romance that makes me not certain. And yes, yeah, so you're right. All these little bits of, of setup and, pay, and payoff. And yeah, it, the, the, the romance story is hasty. As they kind of have to be, it's a convention of this genre. But of course, they have the montage of when he finally manages, you know, to convinces her to uh, to spend some time with him. They get on a carriage to escape from her manager, and then spend the day creating a montage where mostly it's him talking and her listening. It seems to yeah. me, yeah. There's not a lot of back and forth, and she evidently falls in love with him. Uh, yeah, he she falls in love with him, but. I honestly found that montage annoying because I didn't feel like they set up either of the characters being able to interact with each other for any amount of time long enough before their montage for me to believe the amount of cementing of their of their relationship that montage is supposed to give us. Yeah. It's like I don't know what's going on. He literally, like, the most I can remember about the montage is him buying a bag of peanuts, and then I don't remember seeing him offer her any. <laughs> and that bugged me. And it's little things like that that I'm like, if you set something up more beforehand, this would be a payoff. And, you know, we really haven't watched all of that many of this kind of love story, but I, I agree with you. But I also kind of roll with it. You know, if I'm, if I'm watching a musical, okay, I accept the fact that for the purposes of this movie, people in heightened emotional state burst into song. Yeah. If I'm watching a, a romance like this, I will accept the fact that eight hours of soft focus frolicking means you're madly in love with one another. It's just accepted part of the genre. I, I know. It's just, it really, really was... I'm already going to give a little bit of my ending bit. I want to grab this movie by the two ends and either spin it around to centrifugally pull the romance story on one side and the time travel story on the other to make like a fine single episode of TV out of either one. <laughs> or I want to stretch the two ends apart so that it's a longer film and fill in all the little gaps that makes with actual like better setup and a little <laughs> bit of shaving the creepy off of Christopher Reeve's character. Like just to have him find one thing she wrote about this guy to give some reason for him to feel motivated that he's got a reason to go other than, Ooh, pretty. I, it bugs me. <laughs> there ne like there's not set up. There's only payoff in this movie. And I don't know what to do with that. It's like they haven't earned it. Yes. That's that that's a big criticism for me in a lot of screenplays is you know you're you're portraying something that the story has not earned. 
And I'd say this is borderline for me. I'll I'll accept it, but it hasn't clearly earned it. It's narrative on credit. (laughs) Which, in a time travel story, strangely works. Yeah. This leads into the big confrontation bit, interesting, where her big performance, after they've had their frolic, she interrupts with this soliloquy to him yeah adds this long speech in the middle of act one more or less addressed to him Mm -hmm. extremely well delivered i could almost imagine that but for this shocking and heartfelt and emotional speech she would not have drawn the attention she did and had the the elevated career in theater that she had oh yeah this seemed like their entire thing there was a payoff this was actually one of the only, one of the setup payoffs they had. They paid off how she gained so much popularity in this year and went off to this grand career. And they kind of show this sudden burst of a performance that this already leading lady puts so much into this for one moment and literally on the fly produces this long piece that compels the entire audience and it's like yep that's that spark that just took her places from there on it's a literal not a dry eye on the house kind of moment Mm -hmm. Uh, which is immediately followed up with a i i guess the 1912 version of you me parking lot now delivered letter yeah pretty much pretty much a message delivered to richard while he's sitting in the theater to uh to meet uh was it signed by uh, her manager? Yes. Oh, okay. That they needed to meet outside at the gazebo or whatever. Yeah. But it's immediately this interaction where before we've heard some things about the manager, like he'd warned her that, the, that she, she'd eventually meet a guy who would change her entire life. And she was listening to him and believing him on that. And that's part of why she was mentally prepared for when. Richard showed up into her life and she was ready to be whisked away into this whirlwind romance. And this is where we get the manager saying, well, yes, I said those things because someone was going to draw this performance I knew out of her, but I was going to be here to make sure she was a star. (laughs) This isn't about me being a romantic rival. This is about you being the impetus for her getting the recognition she needs as an actress. And then you need to get out of here. The beginning of that speech really had me thinking, oh, is Robinson the manager also a time traveler? Is that why? And I think that was carefully and cleverly done to set us up for that switch. My my notes literally say, is this theatrical Terminator 2 scenario? Has he come (laughs) back from a different future to preserve a timeline where she's an actress and kick the rogue time traveler out? Is that what we're about to see? And no, it's purely. I'm a manager, I manage. Manager. Right. And he just, well, she's a beautiful, talented young lady. Of course, there's going to be some guy who turns her head and and both inspires her and risks derailing her career. I don't know who it's going to be or where it's going to be, but it's inevitable that it's going to happen. So I'm going to warn her about it. But I think that kind of backfired in that she was always expecting this powerful mysterious man to enter her life which means a charismatic i almost want to say bumbling at times <laughs> kind of creepy handsome guy showing up clicked all no numerous boxes and things worked and the end of that speech from christopher Plummer, it doesn't rehabilitate the character in any way he's still an yeah. awful character but does this interesting change with the character in that christopher reeve i think quite reasonably thinks well you think you're in love with her or her or more importantly you think she's your property and she's going to marry you someday and is this what this is all about and robinson Plummer's character gets furious at that do you think i've gone through all of this just to raise a wife she can be the greatest actress of her generation if her talent is cultivated and she's given the right opportunities and she is not distracted by what you represent That's what I'm in this for, for art and for her career. And I really believe that doesn't mean he's any less controlling and creepy, but the way that they presented that and that he could have an interest in her and her career had nothing to do with with any romantic inclinations. 
putting aside the fact the the enormous age difference too. There's a major fallacy of a lot of hero characters to assume that the counterpoint character that they are facing off against has the mirror opposite version of the same motivation. If you're motivated for doing your actions by a, by love, then your then your your enemy must be the same. And this is a brilliant deconstruction of that. So once again, excellent scene. <laughs> Kind of, in almost some weird way, reforming the slight creepiness they'd given Plummer's character doubled down on the creepiness of Christopher <laughs> Reeve's character for me. Well, I think by the end of that scene, Reeve and you know, Richard Collier and Mr. Robinson understand one another better. Mm-hmm. Doesn't make Robinson any better, because what happens next? Yeah, he, he, he sicks a pair of goons to knock out and... <laughs> <laughs> tie up our main character and throw him into the stables. Yeah, they beat him up, tie him up, and throw him in the stables, right? Like, this is what I expected to have happen to this guy that showed up out of nowhere <laughs> so long ago. Oh, are you thinking finally someone is responsible enough to tie this guy up and throw him in the stables? I'm sorry, a random guy <laughs> showed up in a suit that is apparently 10 years out of date, which is like actually one of the r- few running jokes in this. <laughs> Because when you're looking back at history, things get grouped into decade periods yeah. instead of nuances of, sp- of individual years and sets. And so he wound up with a suit that already was dated back in dated, which gets awkward, but funny. Yeah, the stuff we see him wearing at the beginning of this movie in 1980, those are not the fashions of 1986, let alone uh, 1989. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like, you showed up you did not have a booking. You had the money in your pocket and that's it. You slept on the veranda your first night here. Slept on the veranda. How? How at some place that is constantly shown to be this fancy did you not get beset by security and kicked out <laughs> way sooner? This is another instance of you getting by on way too much charisma. But... Yeah, like he gets thrown in the stables and the troop with her leave. Yeah, they've pa- done their performance, packed up, moved on to the next town. Also, they pack up very quick. Well, you know, I got to strike that set overnight. I guess so. Time is money. Time is money, but they're they're gone and he's dejectedly staying another night. Yeah, just moping around. I I don't know what he was planning to do there. Did he think he was stuck in the past? Was he going to try to follow her? Yeah, it couldn't have been that hard to find out where she's performing next. Yeah. Granted, he would have had to get a job or something, I suppose, but... He becomes a roadie? What's going on? <laughs> but in, instead, we get the the honestly kind of quintessential, like, from around the corner, she comes running back to him moment. Right. She's walking around the grounds horrible de- horribly dejected apparently have left the theater company he's wandering around on a staircase horribly dejected and they see one another and they run to one another and everything's wonderful and everything's wonderful and then we finally get a scene where they interact personality to personality <laughs> and more and more tastefully off camera and soft focus oh yeah you know quintessential fluttering drapes they yes pan to fluttering drapes and they do but you actually get a moment after all that where they talk with each other yes and i'm like where was this scene before your montage you (laughs) gave us the payoff before you gave us the setup this makes this is the one moment where i believed these two could be cute together are these the conversations they were having by the lad house and in the rowboat and in the carriage why couldn't we have heard some of that can you turn down the orchestra and slow down your montage a little and give us some dialogue <laughs> back then? Come on. She's a slightly sassy and really amused by him being out of his depth. And it worked. And I was really, really uncertain because I'd spent an entire movie making note after note about how his actions seemed creepy. And then they actually gave me some payoff for these two. And I'm like, <laughs> stop. Bouncing and, me like a rubber ball between these two moods. And, you know, the conversation they're having is great. And this is when they're finally talking about, well, you'll write plays and I'll act in the middle. It'll be wonderful. Yeah. And we'll get married, of course. Well, yeah, of course. Of course. It's like, and then time travel shenanigans strike again because 
if your entire form of time travel is built on a self-hypnosis to physically will yourself into a time, the danger is anything that would shatter that hypnosis. Like an artifact of the modern day. Like a penny in your pocket. She's, she's making fun of his out-of-date suit, and he's talking about, well, but it's great, it's got all these pockets. And he looks down at what he's pulling out in his hand, and immediately, camera effects, as they zoom the camera away into a little box, and blink it out, and he reappears back in modern day. Because what he found in his pocket is a 1979 penny. Oh, the fact that that was so incredibly abrupt that is was so very abrupt. effective. That was really a, I know watching this the first time, I was like knocked backwards and felt my heart sink. And it's like, wait, that can't be, it can't be that simple and can't be that quick. And that can't have destroyed everything. What do you mean? It destroyed everything in an instant. Really a heartrending moment. Oh Yeah. And then, in the modern day, we get the people of the hotel worried because this guy hasn't left his room in, like, a week. And yet, don't we see him moping around the hotel some more? Walking around by the lake and sitting at a picnic table in some of the same locations? I guess so, yeah. So, like, he's left his room, but then he's gone back and then stayed there for days. Yeah, and just so, goes catatonic. Yeah. Until they break down the door, and he is not in good shape. Yeah. He's, like, barely alive. He hasn't eaten, maybe even hasn't had any water in days. And while they are rushing to get paramedics and oxygen to him. You get POV death as, he, as the camera crane zooms away from the bed. Classic out-of-body, near-death experience oh, kind yeah. of thing. And, watching and, himself uh, uh, from the ceiling. Which was very clever camera work. And then... Off through the glowing white window where she, young again, having passed away herself, is waiting for him. And they go off into the afterlife together. So he actually, after coming back to 1980, dies of heartbreak and joins her in the afterlife. <sighs> so, yeah, that's there's a lot in that movie. Yeah. On one hand... They kind of set up the romance scene. On the other hand, her afterlife is spending it with her stalker. Huh. It's, yeah, no, I'm, I'm being too harsh on the film. Uh, yeah. Actually, they did a lot of good setup there to be... A, I'm, I'm, making, I'm making light of it there, but honestly, they yeah. gave a really good payoff with the, the zoom away sequence of them finally getting the chance to talk. They that do, yeah. little ending bit is more of a proper romance story in some ways than a lot of the previous things. Or at least, it, yeah, I feel I, like parts of it are out of order. They do a lot of the work I would have wanted for a character dynamic there, at the end, right. between their, their talk and his time travel back and then his death, is more of a little complete story. Yeah, it really does retroactively make some of the, more of the movie make sense. I really was thinking, oh, they really do get along and they have these conversations that they both enjoy, and that's what they were, that was happening that's what was happening during the day when they fell in love. It wasn't very clear when we were actually seeing that, but yeah, retroactively, it, it brought it around. In some ways, knowing that the, the initial book this was written based on has those ties back to things like Twilight Zone and such, there's something about this story that fits that smaller Twilight Zone frame in that sense. Mm -hmm. And then it's stretched out in the beginning portions to the full movie length, and that's where some of those issues show up. So maybe I want to stretch it to be able to move stuff around and give more framing earlier, or maybe I want to condense it down into a shorter block where they don't give you enough time, and that means that your your suspension of disbelief is different for a TV show amount of time frame, which means you're okay with getting away with less setup. Oh, so like it it might have worked better if there was like a dissolve to two months later after they've fallen in love. Yeah. It's like if you if you'd cut that down like that, maybe you it would have helped me. Okay. On that. But yeah. Yeah, I can see where the same story could be rearranged for different formats and different structures. Mm -hmm. But that that ending scene very it does 
tie it in a nice weird little bow with the death by heartbreak, which is really actually creepy. They do some very impressive I've not had food or water in days makeup on him. Yeah, that is really, that, really unsettling. That, that is unsettling. And then the crane camera of death into the afterlife. <laughs> and that idea of of soulmates and destiny and such, it, it shows up in a number of Matheson's things, even more dramatically in uh, What Dreams May Come. Mm. So uh, you can certainly see the same things at work here. Oh, yeah. So that's, um, that's the movie, which I think leads us to our final questions. Yeah. Anything you want to add before we move to those? I feel very mixed about this film. <laughs> oh, well, let's try to unpack that then. Okay. Our first question for a movie, screen or no screen? I'm going with a no screen. Oh, you're kidding. No, I'm not kidding. There's just so much of this where sitting through it was just eating away at me in these weird ways. Like, I, it was an awkward viewing for me because all of these little bits were great and all of these larger arcs were awkward for me in a way I couldn't handle. And I'm, it just didn't come together for me. Oh, I've, I've got to say screen. I mean, you've got insanely attractive people acting out a story filled with passion and heartache and falling madly in love and weird twists. Oh, I would absolutely say screen this. I kind of, that's why I had, that's why I wanted to couch my entire response at the beginning with how much I like romance stories because the <laughs> fact that this one didn't work for me is actually bugging me because this is supposed to be a thing oh, i get invested in fair enough and maybe i got invested in a way that i that this couldn't pay off in certain ways for me so maybe we have to explore some romance uh, stories that you've liked either here or maybe on the Patreon. yeah as for revive reboot or rest in peace yeah i think i'm gonna say rest in peace because there's plenty of other time travel and romance and time travel romance stories since then. In some ways, this one doesn't have to be re-examined because the setup that this put together is examined other places. And I'm okay with that. Well, let me break these down. Revive, if that's an option. How would you possibly do another connected story in this same continuity? where this is canon. The one thing that comes to mind is they were together at the end of the movie. Mm -hmm. Did they have a child? Oh, I hadn't even considered that part. I was about Who to was born in 1912 or 1913. I was about to say, if you wanted to give us one or two other stories with the same time travel method used by different people. Oh, okay. If there's an yeah. open book about this that was oh. implementable by a guy does this mean that there is just a book on the market that can teach anyone to time travel and you get like a, a small set of other stories of people time traveling for things? That professor who, um, uh, who, who wrote the book and essentially taught Christopher Reeve how to time travel in five minutes. Yeah. He's the connecting part to these stories. Uh, that's an interesting idea. Can you convince yourself you're in the future? Hmm. That, uh, that's, I don't in theory, in theory, why not? You'd have but to. You would have to know so much about the future to get there accurately. Let's say. So you put yourself in a room with a thing and say the next version of this comes out like the there will be a better version of this thing in this time, and you're in a blank room so nothing else can oh. be your effective thing, and you're literally just focusing on the next version of the thing in front of you, and you force yourself to hop forward. So you hop forward in little bits? Yeah. You literally bootstrap paradox yourself to the future. With now I know method. the reason for all those Macintosh rumor sites. Yes! <laughs> it's like, there's a new Ma Apple product release next week, in fact. So I know that... So I'm going to convince myself that I'm walking into an Apple store... And buying an M1 Mac Pro. And then once I've done that, I am going to absolutely convince myself with total certainty that I'm walking into an Apple store and buying an Apple Watch 8. Exactly. And you, can, you, can just, you can literally just leapfrog chain yourself into the future using the same method, theoretically. <laughs> yeah, if, if you're sufficiently fixated on the one thing you can know about the future, 
I suppose Maybe so. Maybe it works. <laughs> you want to give us a trilogy using that method? Can you honestly convince yourself hard enough that you're in an exact same time, but there's a severe enough difference that you move sideways to parallel instead of straight up and down on a timeline? And now you've got a trilogy. So you have a story about someone moving forward in time. You have a story about someone moving backward in time. And you have a story about someone moving sideways in time. And you fill out a trilogy set. Okay, yeah. That could be how you could do a revive by literally completing a trifecta of other ways you can use the time travel tech. Maybe not following them, their story is closed, but that gives you something. And some of these ideas might fit together, too, because I was thinking, well, I mean, I, before I thought about having the time travel method being the connector, I was thinking, okay, what if they do have a child? Fine, that, but that, that's not a story. What's the story? If somehow they have a child and she grows up and meets the famous physicists of the mid-20th century and figures out a way to do time travel, maybe there's something there. I don't know. I just, yeah, I like your idea of just other people hit upon this or learn this time travel method. I like that. So there is a possibility for a mm-hmm. revival, more than I thought. But I, I really think reboot. I hesitate to say that just because I, I love this version of the movie with Jane Seymour and Christopher Reeve so much. I don't necessarily want to see these roles recast, but I would be interested in a 21st century approach to this idea about time and consciousness and projection and time travel. If they were to do a reboot, would you want them to stick closer to the book that this is based on? Maybe the book that this is based on has two major differences. And I actually, in reading the summary version of The Differences, am interested in looking at the book myself later, because the book gives a reason for his tight timeline and an uncertainty about the ending that the movie doesn't give. And so I'm going to, this is me giving a second spoiler warning, because I'm about to spoil a secondary piece of media within this. Okay. In the book, the reason why he's having trouble completing his play is not because of some breakup or anything but because of a recent brain cancer diagnosis. Oh. And so his entire speedy impetus for the entire romance plot is because he's on a ticking clock of life. And oh, the wow. En- and the ending where he is, and also in the book, apparently when he disappears, it's like in the middle of the night and she doesn't know how he vanished. So it's a lot more tragic of an ending in that sense. Oh, so she didn't see him go away she doesn't see him he just disappears on her and she has to piece it together later but we also get the doctors coming in to find him having passed away having come back and seeing a journal about everything he's done and seen and not being certain if he succeeded in time travel or if his final days were full of intense hallucinations due to brain cancer and so the time pair, also, there's no pocket watch. So there's no pocket watch time travel loop. Yeah, that's the thing. You mentioned ticking clock. We had never talked about the t- the pocket watch. Oh, yes. The pocket watch. The pocket watch that she gives him. <laughs> the pocket watch that he gives her. I love it. The pocket it. watch that never has an origin point. Uh. She gives him, in 1980, she gives him this antique pocket watch. He keeps it and uses it for eight years. Brings it back with him to 1912 and leaves it behind when he's pulled back into 1980 so that she has it and keeps it as a memento for her entire life until 68 years later in 1980, she gives it to him. For anyone who's listening to the podcast on the Wikipedia page for this, it is in fact listed with a link on the Wikipedia page page for movies with a time loop but it's not actually in the list on wikipedia of movies with a time loop as of time of recording i'm gonna fix that between the time of us recording and this episode going up so you'll be able to find that change because i'm gonna i'm i'm literally like warning everybody i'm about to edit wikipedia i i like that though because it's the it's one concrete thing that means this happened this had to happen this could not not happen because the 
pocket watch exists, and yet it has, you said, it has no origin. It is a constant in time, this watch. But there is no pocket watch in the book. There is only, and there is no certainty of his time travel. There is a clear first-hand account and some small hints that could be debated. But it is left ambiguous as to whether or not he actually did travel through time. Well, does and, she seek him out and meet him at the beginning? Do you know? Yes, but oh, it's okay. purely with the phrase, and it's not oh, with the for, huh. with the watch and such. So it's the it, it's debated. Was she just an old lady who thought she recognized him, or was he real? And all oh, that? and did she just plant this idea in his mind that? The cancer took over? Exactly. So it's, it's all uncertain. So if they were to do a remake, would you want it to be the movie or would you want it to be a reinterpretation again of the book and its uncertainty principles? I wouldn't want to lose some of those great elements from the movie, like the watch or some kind of some equivalent. And yet I don't mind that sense of ambiguity at the end. I think that would be interesting. Mm -hmm. So if you could manage to keep those together in, in one adaptation, I would like that. I can see that working. <sighs> so, I am really tempted to say reboot. I'd be very interested in seeing a good reboot. I would be just as happy with Rest in Peace, because there's not much I want to change about this movie, or, or some of the things that we mentioned notwithstanding. So, yeah, reboot if I... Reboot if it was done by people who are really talented and really like the material. Otherwise, let it rest in peace. Yeah. I'm still in camp. Let I'm still in camp. Rest in peace. <laughs> so you wanted to rest in peace and not be screened. <laughs> yeah, I I totally get that. There are things I, that I you know this, we don't have to try again. We tried. It doesn't have to be done. I I I'll, I give this movie a lot of credit for being very well made in its things. It kind <laughs> of just made me. Ignoring the flaws that I know this other movie has, but it kind of makes me just want to go watch Kate and Leopold again, which I really like that movie. That is a good movie. That's a uh, talk about you know time travel romance story. Oh no, that's more my speed of that one. One thing that I'm pretty sure would happen if this were made in, uh, if this were re rebooted, a remake of this, 1912 and 1980 would look different from one another. Yes, they. In both settings, all the settings in this have that very distinctive early 80s film quality and lighting quality. And how do you live in a decade painted with oil pastels? <laughs> and I think that, as you've seen in other movies uh, um, that have different time frames or different very specific settings like The Matrix, we would have something of a different filter or video quality or color palette or something to make the two time frames more distinctive my goodness you want to just film this movie with a slight color tone change and a little bit of a depth of field change so that you get a little bit more of it. maybe it'd be difficult for a longer period of the movie but you want to give us the things that are set in older times having a bit more of a classic film depth of field change. yeah yeah it wouldn't have to be too dramatic to be too much but just enough to give it that yeah. ethereal difference in that sense so that a scene with just a character's face from either from a time would show you that time would be a thing and you wouldn't need to go all the way to making them black and white or something like in uh, a dead again yeah no. just something to give us more visual a visual sense of wow we are not where we were we are not when we were before yeah i'm i'm happy with a re or the rest in peace wouldn't mind a good reboot Plenty of good raw material in this film in some form. So, it may not have been your cup of tea, but it seems like you enjoyed the experience of watching it. In some ways, <laughs> watching a movie that did have me crawl up the walls at times about it, being frustrated with it, was great. I'm very, I'm very glad you showed it to me. In some ways, for the podcast at least, we've watched a lot of things you've shown me where I have been all on board with it. Yeah. So a thing like, that like kind of Land of the Lost, like Land of the Lost, like I have gone back and watched more of that actually since we <laughs> recorded that. So having something that didn't click for me for once, kind of, I'm very glad of. So thank you. That's cool. This was this was fun for that alone. So yeah, th this was fun, and uh, and we'll be doing it again. We will be back in a couple of weeks with more tales of media from the 20th century. 
In the meantime, Dad, where can they find you online? Oh, people can find me most places as by Matthew Porter. So you can go to bymatthewporter.com. You can find me on Twitter at bymatthewporter, on Twitch as bymatthewporter, and also at bymatthewporter, you'll find links to any place I've forgotten. And Ian, where can people find you? I can be found on Twitter as itemcrafting, on Twitch as itemcraftinglive, and itemcrafting on most places overall, including itemcrafting.com, which will actually just take you to my Etsy, but still. Cool. That's a good place to, to go. Yeah. And you can find the podcast at immproject.com. That's where you will find links to all of our past episodes. You'll also find a link to our store for t-shirts and coffee mugs and things like that, and a link to our Patreon. Thank you very much, anybody who's able to support us there. And you uh, uh, patrons also get additional audio content each month. And you'll also find a link to our Discord. We'd be happy to uh, to hear from you there or on the contact page that you'll find on uh, immproject.com. Uh, and you'll also find us on Twitter at uh, immpcast. And that's also another great way to uh, to get in touch with us. Let us know what you think of the podcast. Let us know some of your favorite time travel and or romance movies. And if you do write to us, uh, just let us know if, you, uh, if you're if you okay with us reading your letter uh, on the podcast, because we love to uh, share some of that feedback. No time travel required. We're happy to chat. <laughs> so yes, thanks again for uh, for downloading. Thanks as always for listening, and we will be back soon. In the meantime, go find something new to watch. <laughs>